powerful impact. And today we have Nev with us, the man behind the blue wall. How you doing, Nev? Kaboom! Look who stepped in the room to <laughs> Hailing from the Shalinah. And we also have a special guest today who has been on the front lines working for the community for over 20 years, Mr. Richard Adamson II. How are you? How you doing? I'm honored to be here. Um, glad to finally be, you know, with Powerful Impact. I know I begged you enough. And oh, you didn't have to beg. You didn't. All you have to have is an impact on the community, and we here with you. We no gonna question. support you 100. percent No question. I've seen yeah. that since I started watching the show. Yeah. So, um, just let everybody know where you're from. Um, well, I'm from New Rochelle, New York, born and raised. Um, I've been in New Rochelle for 40 plus years, 44 years old. And um, New Rochelle's where uh, my music was birthed, um, where I found my career, where I found my calling. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place, um, full of black history. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to work on doing is bringing back the black history to New Rochelle because uh, New Rochelle was one of the first cities in New York to really undergo um, gentrification. And I mean, in a, in a big way, look at New Rochelle now, almost mm -hmm. all of the black history that I remember is, is gone. And it's, oh, wow. it's kind of hurtful. Yeah. Kind of like what what's disappeared over the years that was so integral to the community. Yeah. Yeah, like I remember when um Richard Roundtree used to come back and um you know visit the community because he's from New Rochelle. He grew up with my father. Mm -hmm. And so when we would see Richard Roundtree, he was like, oh man, Shaft's in town. And then you know um Grand Poobah and and Grand Nubian DJ Alamo, Studdoogie, they all, they never left the community. They might've moved around, but they always came back, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are still, but there was history, um, there was history, there was history like, you know, even beyond beyond them. Like we used to have a lot of black owned businesses and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And you know, since the gentrification, it's, um, it's changed. Yeah. So I heard you uh, mention your father. Um, can you talk about him for a minute? Just talk talk about your dad. I don't think um, dads get a lot of shine, and mm -hmm. people don't know how it, people sometimes take for granted how important a father is in their children's lives. Mm -hmm. Um can, can you talk about your dad for a minute? Absolutely. Um I hear my is that my voice in the background? I want to make sure I don't, you know, over You're good. Over -talk. Okay. Yeah, well, my dad was um a big part of my life because my father struggled in the street for a long time. Um 
you know, with, you know, because his father was was a really like severe alcoholic, and sometimes, mm -hmm. he, sometimes he would be outside playing and find his father laying in the sidewalk. And back in the, the 50s and 60s, you know, um, it wasn't like now where like getting drunk and stuff is promoted. Like if your father was was um, was considered an alcoholic or a person who suffers with alcoholism, it was looked down upon. So he used to be fighting all the time. So it spun him into a life of like, you know, violence and um, things of that nature. So when he reformed his life, which I watched him do, that was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I watched my father, you know, accept God, you know, um, <clears throat> go back into the church and, and really use the church for what it's meant for. Mm -hmm. Because because he was dying, literally, you know what I'm saying? Whatever evil forces was coming out of him was trying to kill him. And so he turned around and, be, you know, he married my mother and he really devoted himself into being a father and an example and um he really zeroed in on me as his only son because he was just telling me um he was like you can't go down the path i went he was telling me that and he was mm -hmm. he didn't he did not play with me you know what i'm saying he didn't he didn't play he loved me but he just didn't play mm -hmm. um but my mother said when I was one years old, he was standing over my crib saying, I don't want him to be like me, you know, um, because of what he went through in the street. You know, the sixties was a rough time. It was dope, you know, in mm -hmm. New York and all over, all over the black communities. And um, New Rochelle was not what it's painted as now, like just this happy-go-lucky town. You know, you had three housing projects. Um, you had a lot of drugs. That was in New Rochelle. And um, mm -hmm. when my father started the street ministry, um, he took me to what they used to call the eight yard. It was a field right outside the project where people used to gamble and shoot up. And he was preaching out there. And I, I remember when he first took me out there, some of the guys were looking at him like, are you, are you kidding me? They used to call him Sleep. That was his, um, his street name because mm -hmm. it's, it's knockout punch, he's called him sleep. So mm -hmm. they, they sleep. sleep, sleep is a preacher. Sleep is preaching now. I thought you was gonna die, and I was I'm hearing this. And mm -hmm. um it was quite an experience, and I seen other people like see him and be like, if if sleep can can overcome his demons, so can I. You know, they was that that's what they were saying. It was like if sleep can do this, because you know. You know, my father was shot by the police and, and a lot of people thought he was going to die. You know, as a matter of fact, my uncle, this is a true story, his brother put his black suit in the cleaners when he found out my father got shot because he was like, I saw this coming. You know what I mean? Because my father was just like really out there. So when he came back yeah. to the projects as this preacher um, and as this person who was helping people get off drugs, like people, it's, it's a miracle. For real, like I, I really saw a miracle when I was a kid, and I think that helped me, you know, because I went through stuff too. But when I when I used to see my father go to the altar at the church and he'd be crying, and I asked my mother, like, why is he crying? And my mother would basically say he's trying to get free. You know what I'm saying? Because not too many things took my father down, but my father did tell me that the, the drugs was a struggle. 
And I seen that make him cry. Like, so that that had an impact on me. You know what I mean? When you watched your father um, struggling through those moments, did mm -hmm. it um, did it deter you from ever wanting to try drugs? That's a good question at that time. It did at that time because I never seen nothing really make my father cry. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I never, you know, except for when my grandmother passed away, his mother, you know, um, that was really, that was really it. So, yeah, at that mm -hmm. time, it, it did deter me because I was like, it just, it, it baffled me what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And how old were you? Uh, maybe seven or eight. About seven years old, yeah. About seven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as you grew, um, did that change? With the drugs? Yes. Um. Well, I have to say, yeah, yeah, because um, when I was when I was younger, eighteen, nineteen, mm -hmm. um, I was. I guess you could say I had a a. a a weakness for relationships that weren't good for me. And um, mm -hmm. I didn't really get in deep, but uh, I remember I, I took a drink and smoked a, a joint with this girl because I liked the girl. And that's mm -hmm. what she do. So, you know, I met her, you know, she was a poet and I was an artist and we came together and she was like, you know, try this, you know what I mean? You know, and me looking at her, I'm like, you know, and, um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Lust, lust is yeah. a powerful, powerful thing, <clears throat> and it happened powerful to me. Powerful drugs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, I got caught. I got caught out there through lusting. You know what I'm saying? I was lusting, and and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so you know. It it's a dangerous devil, you know what I'm saying? It'll it'll always find a way to creep in. That's why you have to remember what you're taught. And my father used to always tell me, remember what I teach you. Don't just hear me because you're gonna get tested out there and I'm not always gonna be with you. Mm hmm Yeah. Mm -hmm. It, um was that the um the only time you were tempted and and how did you manage to pull yourself out of that kind of situation? Well, I just realized that that's not what I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that I knew that I had a calling on my life. I didn't know exactly all of what it was. Mm -hmm. What I watched, what I watched drugs do to people, I was like, I couldn't do this. And then I had to flip it. You know, I had to ask myself, like, if if I really liked the young lady, would I try to get her high? You know, um, and, and the way I was raised, my parents would call out abuse. Like, if they found out that I was trying to give a girl a drink, or a drink you know, they'd be like, what are you, why would you do that? You know what I mean? That'd be frowned upon. So mm -hmm. I had to look at I had to look at that relationship as unhealthy for myself. So I got out of it. You know, it took me a while, you know what I'm saying? But I got out of it. But I really didn't get mm -hmm. caught up. With, with the drugs because I took at that time I took pride in being an MC 
that can write mm-hmm. without drugs. Because the big thing at, at that time when I was young was everybody used to smoke or drink to get songs. And I used to brag or boast that I can write songs and come up with hits with no drugs. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So that was part that was part of my uh character as an artist. How did you start wanted wanting to actually be an artist? Um well, it started when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was always into percussion. I used to take my mother's tubbleware <laughs> and get in trouble because I used to make drums. You know, because we mm-hmm. couldn't afford set. So I was beating drums. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my parents grew up in the 50s and 60s era. So um, I remember my aunts, like when we moved into my grandmother's old house, um, my uh, my aunt left all her records there. And it was... James Brown, Curtis Mayfield, uh, Martha was in the Vendetta, and um, who else? The Supremes, um, the the Marvelettes. I mean, you name it. And the sisters uh, that liked, you know, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder. So music was always in my ear, but I liked old music. And so I found out over the years that I liked it because it was a form of expression. And I always had to the need to express something. You know what I mean? When I was a kid, I really didn't know what at the time, but I knew I always had a need to, to express something. And so as I got older, I realized what it was. And all of those songs, like I, I listened to everything, Cindy Lauper, um, you know, um uh Rod Stewart, you know, um, all these guys, uh uh Sam Cook, and they and I just put it all when hip hop came about, I realized that I could write. And it made me want to become an artist, not to get famous, not to make money, but to get my message out. I always had like this, something in me I had to express. So I realized that when, when hip hop came out, that was the new voice of the community, the streets, the everything. You know, they were like um, the Furious Five and all of them, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, had a big influence on me. You know, um, I knew uh, Mike. I think they used to call him Money Mike or Jazzy Mike. That was uh, mm-hmm. Grandmaster Flash assistant. I know him real mm-hmm. well. And I know Charlie Rock. I don't know if you guys remember Charlie Rock. He was one of the original uh, dancers when, when mm-hmm. MC Shop used to rap. Because my mother's from Bronx River Project. Okay. And so when I used to go down there, I used to see a lot of the hip hop influence then. So it kind of was it kind of was in me from a young man. Teenage years hit, I knew I wanted to get behind the mic and say something. So what was the first song that really got you, that made you uh really fall in love with hip hop? That really made me fall in love with hip hop? I would have to say that's a good question. <laughs> I would have to, I, I would have to say um Hey Young World by Slick Rick. Yeah. Hey Young World, the world is yours. I, that song stood out to me because he was speaking to our generation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, that 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 was a standout. That that was a standout track for me because I was at that age and mm-hmm. he was he was spitting some truth that not many people wanted to uh address. And yeah. uh yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. everybody listens to Slick Rick and think, you know, because of the beats that they're so lighthearted, but there's a lot in those lyrics if you just mm-hmm. stop to actually listen. Oh yeah, and I mean Slick Rick was he was brilliant. Let me tell you something when I met Slick Rick years mm-hmm. ago, he came he came to Hartley Projects in New Rochelle where Grand Poobah is actually from. But I think Slick Rick's producer or manager Vance Wright was from New Rochelle. He brought Slick Rick up there and he came mm-hmm. out to the project to see us. But he had this graceful energy with him. Like mm-hmm. he made he may be flamboyant like on TV and in the videos, but he had this graceful energy with him where all the kids just ran around him and mm-hmm. he just he just embraced the children. You could tell that I believe that he had the children in mind when he was making his music. Yeah. Um who's some of your who was some of the his his give us some of the history of New Rochelle and um as as related to hip hop, well, New Rochelle has chapters of um, history with hip hop. Um, one of the most unsung places that I've ever seen, honestly, uh, mm-hmm. is New, is New Rochelle because see, Brand Nubian really when they came out, they they really were a representation of the talent in New Rochelle. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and outside of them, like there was another group that Heavy D had signed called the Rough House Survivors. Um, mm-hmm. and they just didn't didn't last long, but they were the, the lead vocalist, uh, Roberto Castellano, is what they call him. That's actually my producer's brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, but they had an amazing group. And then you had an, uh, a group that I used to be part of before I connected with Mandiverse called USS or Slash Enough Damage. So you had a lot of artists in New Rochelle that just never really got a chance to um, get to the forefront to be known. But I listen, I know artists between New Rochelle, Mount Vernon, and Yonkers and stuff like that. I know artists that were greater than some of the people that I heard on the radio. And I used to tell them. I used to be in the street telling certain guys, like, listen, get off the corner, man, because you got a gift that you know what I mean? And and I'm saying I considered myself an MC, right? Mm-hmm. But some of these, some of these guys I'm telling you about were better than me. I couldn't touch them. Did I tell you I couldn't touch them? Couldn't touch them. Mm-hmm. My my producer, my former producer has a brother named Anthony, untouchable. As far as our circle, you know what I mean? His mm-hmm. brother Robert, that was signed by Heavy D, an older brother, untouchable. You know, um mm-hmm. Uh, there's another artist named Nisus. Uh, just, I mean, he he could do things with words that I can't even imagine. You know, yeah. even know how to do. Um, there's Polo Big. I mean, there's, there's so many artists from New Rochelle who just never got a, a chance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then you and then you have you know uh, Grand Poobah. 
and, and CO Smooth has roots in New Rochelle and Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. You know, CL Smooth was great. You know, it's just it was so much talent out there. Um, one of the things that was was dreadful to me is that growing up, drugs really impacted a lot of our communities. And so there were people that were great, that had great talent, that you know, uh they they fell like to the lifestyle. So I um just going to let you know that we're going to kind of hop all over the place only because I yeah. want to touch on what what you're talking about now. And then we'll go back to the music. But I really want to talk about um, the impact of drugs on the community. Yeah. Um, first, can you tell people um, what you do for a yeah. living? Yes, um, I'm a human service professional and a substance abuse counselor. Um, I'm credentialed by the state, licensed by the state, or credentialed, you could say, by the state. Um, I have two degrees in human services, um, and I also do family development counseling. You know, I did that at one time. <clears throat> yeah, so, um, and then I, you know, I'm involved in activism as well. Um, you know, I, I helped former boxers who, you know, were robbed out of their money. You know, I, I helped them in charity events. Um, and uh, also an activist. Um, one of uh, the president of the Throwaway Kid Foundation who was a former boxer who I fought. Um, he was a foster child. So, mm-hmm. you know, I helped him in many of the events to help foster children, children that are in foster homes and don't have parents and things of that nature. So uh, just a lot of community work and human service work. And I'm also involved with the church as well. You know, mm-hmm. before, the fa- the, before the pandemic, we would feed the homeless um, for uh, a, a free breakfast every month. So um, I, I, I asked you that question just so um, people can understand that you just not pull in this stuff out of your butt that you right. this is what you do <laughs> this is who you are you know pause yeah <laughs> yeah so can you tell let's talk about the because i don't think that we are giving um this generation a really clear picture of what it was like in the 80s when crack came on the scene. We can um, try to explain, we can try to, you know, explain it, but I don't think they really understand the complete devastation that happened without, throughout our communities when mm-hmm. crack hit the scene. Well, yeah, I can tell you about that because, you know, um like probably all of you, we were all there. Uh, I mean, crack was such a fast-acting drug that when I saw what was happening, you know, between my neighborhood, you know, I grew up on Horton Avenue, um, right by the Hartley Projects in New Rochelle, and, you know, crack was all through there. You know, crack was all through the city. Mm-hmm. And between, between seeing crack vials and syringes from 
the heroin, the people who are addicted to heroin from the 60s era who were still around, it kind of combined. It's like, you know, it was like a nightmare. And I mean, crack didn't show any mercy to any community. Like the boroughs as well as the, I mean, the, the suburbs as well as the boroughs. You know, there was like almost no difference as far as drug. Maybe the amount was bigger, you know what I'm saying? But it, it was, it was, it, it increased crime prostitution mm -hmm. and then you had AIDS and often I tell a younger generation when I do get a chance to speak to them right I tell them that it was different then because when when you caught AIDS back then it was it was like you died they didn't have all mm -hmm. the drugs at least that I remember they didn't have all the drugs that you have now so back then it was like it was like a death sentence so we kind of grew up with a certain fear, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. because, yeah, because um, crack had changed every everything so fast. Like, in in the the place where I lived in, um, on Avenue, sometimes you would hear people fighting in the hallway over you know just different things like drug dealing and all that, and uh, you know, and then I would see people that will fly one week, gold chain. Mm -hmm. And then the next week, you know what I'm saying? I was like, and I was a kid seeing this and I'm like, I was, you know, a, a, a female that was beautiful. This girl was beautiful. Two weeks mm -hmm. later, you know, she looks like she's transformed into something else. And we're, you know, like I'm seeing this as it's happening. like. Living in that era was um, it, it's hard. It's hard to even describe. It was just, you know, the part that bothered me though is like people started to like normalize it. I'm like, this is not normal, you know what I'm saying? But I've always been one of those people, like in I'm not trying to be funny, but like in the horror movies, like screaming, like, "Hey, yo, this is not normal," you know what I'm saying? It was, yeah. it, it was just, you know, um. And then I saw how the women were preyed upon, you know, because they would they would be with people they would never be with if they wasn't on crack. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, I just remember seeing crack vials in, on the basketball court where we playing basketball, and you know what I'm saying. And then when I went to my mother's neighborhood in, in Bronx River, it was you know even worse. It was just you know it made. It kind of made New York scary. Like New York was always mm -hmm. tough, but it made it made New York scary. And, then, and and I mean, New York wasn't even the worst place. I mean, you you had other places like Detroit and all that. That was, you know, Detroit. You know, Texas is rough, but it just Baltimore. I don't know. The, Baltimore, yeah, yeah, yeah. Baltimore, California. I mean, what I the research I did on Detroit though. That's that what I saw there. That I was like. You know what I mean? Um, but the crack ever just, it was a drastic change. I've never seen anything like that. It was a no. drastic, drastic change. And you know? I grew up in Texas, so mm -hmm. it was a nightmare because mm -hmm. you, you know, growing up in Texas, you walk outside, your neighbor's outside. Hey, neighbor, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? I'm gonna come and bring you a pilot. I mean, 
this is how we talk. You know, hey, we going to come by later on. And do you need any groceries? We got to go to the store. So we work as a community. I've never seen a community shut down so quickly. It got to the point where um, houses that were open, the kids were playing in the yards and then, you know, stickball in the streets. And then all of a sudden it was gates put up and, and burglar mm -hmm. bars all around the house and spotlights and floodlights mm -hmm. all around the house. And it was, it was literally mm -hmm. like we all got put in jail all at one time because we couldn't go outside anymore mm -hmm. because somebody was going to get shot. Mm -hmm. We, and even mm -hmm. in the house, if you heard gunfire, you knew to hit the ground. You, you, mm -hmm. you just laid on the mm -hmm. floor. Mm -hmm. So I don't think yeah. people really understood that you'd go to school and even the teachers were going through your lunch bag taking your, your little dollar 25 for your chocolate cake and a cool cup at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> they were even taking yeah. that out of your lunch kit. <laughs> it wasn't safe anywhere. Yeah, well, and we know, grew up in that. Mm -hmm. and, and then they wonder yeah. why yeah, we're I mean, so emotionally closed up. So wait, the teachers took the money to go use to go buy crack, to go purchase crack? Oh, you you would <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> no. <laughs> Texas yeah. was awful. We had And you know what's sad? What? You know, I'm sorry. That certain places didn't even get the attention it needed for because of what was happening to it. Like Texas was one of those places that, you know, it just so happens that, you know, um, I knew about Texas, you know, but a lot of like the way the news cameras would go to like the five boroughs and some other places, California, mm -hmm. they didn't talk a lot about Texas and, you know, other places that was really impact like fifth ward, Texas. Mm -hmm. And all these places, um, they didn't, you know. So there were a lot of places that got skipped over, as far as the attention that it needed, the help that was needed. And I could identify with with that because being from a suburb in New York, right? People mm -hmm. just assumed that everything was okay. Yeah. But things like crack, AIDS, and they don't discriminate. They don't care if you're from the project. They don't care if you're New York. You're from New York, or that's why I don't believe in. You know, a lot of times when brothers say where I'm from, I don't believe in that. That's mm -hmm. just me. But I don't believe. I believe that we're all a people. When we, if you're suffering in Texas, I'm suffering over here. Mm -hmm. Because, because by the grace of God, they go, they go out. If you understand what I'm saying. Yes. Whatever, whatever's happening. If the police shoot at you, they'll do it to me. You know what that's I mean? That's right. And sometimes that bothers me because that's how we treat each other. It's like, oh, that's not my problem. Well, that's the, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, but I'm saying that to say I felt like places like Texas and a lot of other places should have got more attention for the help that was needed because I personally 
You know what I'm saying? Like I had a relative who died of AIDS. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Behind behind what's going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so even for me to say that publicly is difficult. But I remember asking my mother, why, why is my family member not getting better? Because you know, as a kid, I'm thinking you get a cold tomorrow, the next day is gone. And you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. It, but people would act. People would treat me like, "Oh, you, you're from New Rochelle. Everything's fine up there." And I'm like, "You don't know what to have. A problem is a problem. Yeah. You know, no matter where it's at. You know, if if I had cancer in my foot, I'm not gonna be like, oh, it's nothing. It's not in my brain.' So I'm, you know what I mean? I'm gonna tell the doctor, yo, listen, what can we do? Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, but yeah. I definitely knew about about Texas and you know about what was going because I researched the whole thing. My uh, my friend, my friend uh, sister had a a little BYOB joint juke joint in in uh, South Park, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was Christmas time, and we we used to sit in the back of the. In, in the back of the bar, you know, until she closed and then she would take us home. You know, we do our homework and whatever. Mm-hmm. I remember a man walked in with the Christmas tree and all the ornaments and, and the presents and sold, sold it in the bar for $20. Mm-hmm. All of it mm-hmm. for twenty bucks. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then you had mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the woman come in, maybe thirty minutes later, looking for him. She has the kids, and he sold their Christmas tree and all of their gifts mm-hmm. for twenty dollars to get cracked. Those are the stories. Mm-hmm. When you walk around Third Ward and there's no doors on the houses because they done took all the doors off the houses and they're selling to um, carpenters that that are built ho- built mm-hmm. house builders. When they t- go in and mm-hmm. all the claw, you remember those iron claw tubs? You go in, they they've stripped the whole bathroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, yeah, no, I, I remember, like, like I could identify with what you're saying as far as the impact, because let me tell you how devastating this was. I was a kid. It's not normal for a kid to be able to look into a grown man's eyes or a grown woman's eyes and be able to tell they don't crack. Mm-hmm. Let me you know, go, you know what I'm saying? Because when you're a kid, you're not sure if they're going to do something to you. Like sometimes they used to ask us for, can I borrow $2 or $1? But you're not, you know, you're kind of nervous as a kid. You think one of them is going to do something to you because they're looking mm-hmm. in your eyes. But it's not normal. It's not normal for me as a child to be able to look in a person's eyes and analyze a drug habit. A kid now, I'm saying. Mm-hmm. There were people. There were people that I knew um, male and female that after having a conversation with them, because you know sometimes people try to hide it that they, 
but you could see mm-hmm. that mission. You could see that mission in their eyes, and mm-hmm. that's that was the devastation of of that drug. Like kids, after we learned what was going on, yeah, kids, kids could you know kids could tell. I used to hear them say it like if somebody walks down the, the block, oh he's smoking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the crack era was that was devastating. It was a lot of babies born through that. Um a lot and and, and a lot of abuse that took place because of what it did to homes and mm-hmm. families. So a lot of people who who didn't directly do the drug, they still were mm-hmm. impacted. And that's what I tell people don't take lightly just, just because a person is not doing the drug what they're experiencing though. Mm-hmm. Cause when you see yeah. that happening in your family, you know what I'm saying. When you got a beautiful cousin, who the next time you see her, she's like, "You like, mom, what happened to her?" You know what I'm saying? That's that. People don't think that that matters, but I don't. I, we're so desensitized today, as a mm-hmm. society, we're desensitized to pain and emotional suffering and damage, generational damage, right? And that's why we're producing uh, men, men that don't know how to cherish a woman, men that don't know how to take care of their children, because it's like we're not nurturing humans. You know what I'm saying? That's why when you and I were talking, you know, probably you were saying about being a nurturer. I was that hit me when you said that because I'm like, we need nurturers because you have to. In our society, you know, we need to bring families back together. But if all I'm taught to do is fight, have sex, smoke, and dance, what use am I going to be to a wife? You understand what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. and um, you know, I have two what daughters. What use are you going to be to? What use is a woman going to be to a husband if that's all yeah. you know? Right, because I think it's it's not it, it, it's I think too much is put on the men. Yeah. Um. Yes. Uh. Yes, we do look for we look do look to men for a certain of, amount of things. However, there uh-huh. is a failure on both parts, and um, I don't. I don't think. You you can never get to a conclusion mm-hmm. unless you address um, the wrongs and pains of both sides of the equation, and nobody mm-hmm. because I don't I never want people to feel like um, I'm we're going to just beat up men or right. we're just going to beat up women. Because I think this is uh, something that is um, on both sides of the equation. Because it's just as much a problem for men as it is for women. Um, I just seen a woman talking about uh, get away from me with your broke ass. Well, Uh when did where this because he won't buy all of your friends a drink now all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Is something wrong with him? Well, I went through that, you know, coming up. Um, yeah, because I wasn't bling bling, and a lot of the girls, you know, weren't interested in me, you know. Um, 
and uh it only it only added to my music and stuff and me working on myself but it was hurtful and you're right because i was abused by a woman mm -hmm. you know so it's it's true i forgave her you know what i'm saying but yeah it does happen um I was assaulted by one of my teachers in school, a couple of them. But this woman mm -hmm. really, you know, closed her fist and and like punched me in the head. Mm hmm. Yeah. Sorry mm -hmm. that happened to you. Um, huh? I said I'm sorry that happened to you because this is it's one of it's one of the things that I struggle with because. Mm -hmm. Me being a, a woman and being a black woman, I know that there are certain issues that we're going to deal with that you're never going to have any idea about because it's not something you have to deal with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I also know there are things being a black man that you have to deal with that I really don't have to deal with on a regular basis. And um, mm -hmm. I think it's very important that we, we, when we, I just, I like to address our men and our boys because I think we've done just a piss poor job of nurturing our men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I so think what, what, what you were talking about um, really struck me because mm -hmm. I think that we don't take the time to just, just say you're needed. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, SP, um, when that happened to me, um, I was not nurtured at all. I was not helped, and it impacted me. My my, uh, it it impacted me emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Impacted my behavior. I made a lot of mistakes behind that because she punched me. This woman, this woman, you could see that she. I don't know what happened to her, but she hated men. Because you know, I was only in fifth grade, and she would stand up in front of the class and talk about how men are terrible, and she's gonna stand up to men, and and she would even tell us about conversations that she had with her boss at one time, the principal. And she mm -hmm. was like, well, I, "I don't care," you know. And I noticed she had a thing about showing young black males they're not so big and bad, and and that's the stereotype that hurts us, and it hurts somebody like mm -hmm. me who was raised to be nonviolent. You know, my father, being shot, my father being shot by the police and going to jail had a large impact, a huge impact on how I was raised. And a lot of people mm -hmm. don't understand it. My father didn't want me to let people beat me up, but he really didn't want me to. He was like, I'm not going to teach you to go outside and fight like they teach the average black kid. You better go out there. And so I was not, I was for the most part nonviolent. And so for this woman to, she didn't protect me. She hurt me because there was another kid who shoved me and he shoved me once he shoved me again. So we started pushing him. We got mad. So we started fighting back. I started fighting him back. And instead of her asking me what happened, she just walked up on me, 
boom, to teach me a lesson. Like, stop trying to be so tough. And I'm like, if you actually really got to know me, you know that I'm not a black man that thinks he's hard or thinks he's tough. I'm in fifth grade. I'm 10 years old. I'm trying to find my way through school to this, you know what I'm saying? And, and I had my own trauma as a kid, you know what I mean? So a lot of times, you know, sometimes I was a class clown, and, but, but that's because I was just trying to find my way. You know, I had academic issues. So yeah, my behavior could annoy people at times, but it wasn't purposely. It was just, I was a kid who didn't think like an adult and she punched me and then say, yeah, like kind of like, yeah, I did it. And then when I told, they didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, it because back then it was a you didn't have. It, as children, we didn't really have a voice. Mm -hmm. You know, if an adult did something to you, it was normally, well, what did you do mm -hmm. to make them do that? Instead mm -hmm. of questioning that adult, why would you punch a 10-year-old? But when we were growing up, that's kind of way the way it was, you know. We I remember um doing something down the street and getting my butt whooped by the woman down the street, mm -hmm. and then she called, even if you didn't do anything, then she called and tell your mama, and then mm -hmm. you get home and then you got whooped. Again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they didn't ask you any questions about what happened. Right, or, right. yeah, it was just whatever the lady down the street said, then that's what you did. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think it's, I think that's why I know for me as a parent, it was really important for me that my daughter had a voice. Yeah, yeah. And that she knew that it was okay to just tell an adult no. Mm-hmm. You know, no, mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. No, I don't want you to touch me. You mm -hmm. know, did mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. did that impact the way that you that um, you interact in this world? And in, interacted in the world, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it created a great oh, conflict. Um. Well, for some reason, it didn't impact the way I raised my daughters. Because I was hurt as a child, when I had Ooh. children, I became extra protective over my babies. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, my babies are, are everything. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I would never want my babies to experience what I did, what I experienced. So I guess you could say, yes, it did, because I tried it my best. Sometimes my daughters don't even want to be tell me, don't even want, and I'm trying to say it right. They don't even want to tell me stuff if something happens, because they know I'm I'm mostly a, a happy-go-lucky guy. But when I heard, when I hear something happen to them, they see me change, like, what? You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. 
part of it is because I relive the powerlessness of when I was a child. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm like, no, nah, you got somebody fighting for you. And my daughter be like, Daddy, it's not that deep, you know, because one of my daughters is grown, and and mm-hmm. one time this guy was trying to talk to her, and but he, it was very lewd how he was approaching her, and she got uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. She called. Me. I went down there, <laughs> you know what I mean, and um, you know, when they saw me, they were like, oh. Lord, here go her father. You know what I mean? But so it, it kind of impacted me. Um, the way I, yeah, it did impact the way I raised my children. I became like a, a, a very serious protector. The way the way it impacted me, just in my own personal life, was a lot of inner conflict. Because when you get abused, you start to think something is wrong with you, and then you start treating other people like that. You know what I'm saying? So. Mm-hmm. The school sent me a message, like when they didn't do anything to her, um, they sent me a message that, you know, you don't rank as high as her as a human. You're a man. You don't really like her. And you're black. She's white. She's Italian. Um, and yeah, they just, I mean, she was even allowed to approach me again. She she kind of approached me like, why did you tell on me? She could have hit me again. You know what I'm saying? Because my, I guess my parents reached out and the school found out or whatever, but they did nothing, you know, to her. Not that I wanted them to, like, condemn her to hell or something like that, but you can't punch a, a kid in the head because you don't like men. And that's what she did. And that impacted me for years. And I saw her later on. We talked. She was still kind of unapologetic, but I let it, you know what I'm saying, I let it go. I forgave her because I couldn't be carrying that. But, you know, it's already hard enough to be a young black male. It's hard enough to be a human being. But to, to have somebody beat on you and punch you, they don't know what that can cause you to experience later in your, in, in, in your life. And it did cause me some problems. It caused me a lot of problems. Because I would have flashbacks. Some nights I'd get up, I wouldn't sleep. Um, and it almost got to the point of like self-harm because nobody likes to feel unprotected, not even for a moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do I not matter? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, there's no way that I'd be able to, um, or anybody would be able to harm a, a little white child or you know what I'm saying, or or a man will be able to punch a little girl, but but where's my protection? Like, am I sub- They kind of made me feel like you're a man. You're supposed to deal with that. But then you then then if I grow up and become violent, the police will shoot me. They did it to my father. Mm-hmm. You understand? Know what I'm saying? They shot my father when they felt he was too violent. You know, so it's like with being a black male, the the, the torment sometimes is like. Is the two mixed messages. You tell me to stop trying to be a gangster. You tell me to stop trying to be tough. But then you abuse me. I don't understand. So that's why when I counsel other people, the first thing I let them know, it's okay to it's okay for you to be human. You can cry in my office. You can snot in my office. You could I'll clean it up. I'll wipe it up. And we're gonna reach a solution. But you gotta know somebody cares. You got to know your life has some value. Because I work with men and women. And mm-hmm. I have to be able to nurture them 
you know, to help them the same way. I had to learn it. And I had to deal with my own problems first. You know what I'm saying? I've been in therapy before. But, uh, yeah, that's the torment sometimes of, of being a black male in, in this country because, you know, people always, there's always this stigma on us that we're the most egotistical men. We have the biggest ego. And that's not true. A lot of the image you see is fear and confusion. Because one end they're saying, act like a human, but we treated like gorillas. You know, you can you can punch me. I'm just supposed to be able to shake it off. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's one of the things that always, to answer your question, yeah, that really bothered me. I, I, I didn't like being treated like, um, like I wasn't human. And that's why some, it even affected uh, some of the relationships I had with women because I used to get so upset if a woman treated me like I didn't have feelings. I used to, and they used to be like, why are you so sensitive? They didn't understand. Like, don't treat me like all I want is sex. Don't treat me like, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm just testosterone. But that came mm -hmm. from, that came from the abuse I took as a kid. Cause that happened to me more than once. Um, and it happened to a lot of kids. I wasn't the only one, but one teacher choked me around the, wrapped, wrapped their hands around my throat. And um, they weren't suspended or anything. Um, then the other one punched me. Um, Another one threatened me. I was threatened by a male teacher. Um, they do a lot of things to young black kids, young kids, period. Mm -hmm. But that that day, I don't know what happened. My father came to the school and the dude got scared, you know, because he said he was going to beat me up or something like that. And, you know, my father's, you know, was big. He was a big dude, like 6'3, 260 pounds, and no teeth for the fever. Is that what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, so he so he came and he said, yo, you said, what kind of school is this? You saying you're going to beat my son up? And everybody knew me. And they knew I wasn't harmful. Like, people wouldn't see me and tuck their chains or hide their money. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't, what was it about me where you felt you had to use violence? But a mm -hmm. lot of times people will see young black males and they feel like, oh, he thinks he's a gangster. And I'm saying, stop watching TV and get to know people. However they portray us on TV, it's your job to say, let me not watch TV. Let me, you know what I'm saying? Like, really get to know us because I've been dealt with like that so, so much because at the time when I was younger, people would see a young black man, oh, he, he probably think he's tough. Let me show him he ain't so big and bad. That's a lot of times people say when police murder young black men, it's out of fear. I don't agree with that. I think, it's a message saying we're more powerful than you. That's what mm -hmm. I think. Like we could kill mm -hmm. you and get away. Yeah, because all abuse is about power. Thank you. It's very seldom about anything, but I can, so I will. Right. Um. Um. Mm -hmm. How do you heal hurt? And then how do you counsel people to heal their hurt? Because it's no, it's as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, I practice wellness. Like, I strongly do not believe in being a hypocrite. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I try, I try as best I can not to be a hypocrite. You know, um, 
it's not always easy, but I practice wellness. Even though at one time in the African-American community, going to counseling or seeing uh, a therapist wasn't really the thing, I did it, you know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. I learned to I learned to do it through my mother because my mother believes in God. My mother believes in Jesus. But my mother also admitted to us that she was diagnosed as clinically depressed. And my mother does what she has to do to address it, it spiritually mm -hmm. and clinically. And so mm -hmm. I learned that. And so I practice wellness myself, spiritually, clinically, and any other way that I have to. You know what I'm saying? Um, mm -hmm. So I take human services seriously. And I don't want to scare people when I say this, but almost like a religion. And the reason why I say that is because I have to believe in human services and practice human service in order to effectively do it for somebody else. You know what I'm saying? I can't tell I can't tell a woman who's been abused to practice wellness, but then I'm going home getting drunk to deal with my pain. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's why I don't drink or smoke or none of it. None of it. Um, mm -hmm. But I also let them know, like I, I approach them from a strengths-based approach. That's one of my favorite approaches to using counseling, the strength-based approach, which lets them know that even though you're in counseling, even though you have a habit, right, the power and the answers are still in you. You just have to feed those and resurrect those instead of feeding the habit. Whichever one you feed is going to be more powerful. So... Mm -hmm. That's that you know. That's the message that I try to I try to give them. You know, is that the power is within you, and I use a strengths-based approach, which is actually clinical. You know, it's clinical to use a strengths-based approach, because you don't mm -hmm. want to, the opposite of a strengths-based approach is the deficit approach. Mm -hmm. The deficit approach is you need me, you don't have the answers, so you just be quiet and let me tell you how sick you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So you take the client-centered approach, right? Client client in the middle of in the middle of setting an environment, but starting right. with them first, and then working outward, internal mm -hmm. to the external, micro mm -hmm. to the macro. What is the source of your strength? The source of my strength. Um, the source of my strength is my family history with, you know, what my mother and father gave me, um, my belief in God, my belief in Christ, um, what I learned as a human service worker, um, and my experiences in life, how to put them, I've learned mm -hmm. how to put perspective, or I should say, I'm still learning how to put them into um, the proper perspective. Just one of my strengths is being real. You got to be real with ev with everything that you do. You know what I mean? I can't like just like I know people fake it in recovery, like fake it in counseling. People fake it in church. People fake, but I can't fake it. I can't focus on what they're doing. I know that if I came here for God, that's got to be why I showed up here. A lot of crowds always show up. In those crowds, you're going to have people that's there for real. Then you're just going to have people that's there for the wrong reason. 
So the source of my strength is always what my parents taught me. Don't just show up. Get something out of it. And my father used to say to me, he said, listen, a lot of people go to school, but they don't get their diploma. You know what I'm saying? He said, I've seen a lot of people show up, you know, and just be in the building, but they don't get nothing out of it. So the source of my strength is those messages that I got through my dad, through watching his experience, my mom's experience, um, through what I've learned in school, mm -hmm. the Bible. I just put it all together and I and I use it the best of my ability. You know, I'm not the smartest man in the world. I'm not, you know, I don't know every theory, but to the best of my ability, I use what I have. Can I ask, how do you use, like, I like that. You said client-centered approach earlier. When it comes mm -hmm. to therapy and being a clinician and a practitioner, which you are, and a counselor, right, substance abuse, how do you use yourself as a quote-unquote tool, use of self, in, an, in the mm -hmm. office setting, outside the office setting? I mean, you kind of, you kind of got into it here, but I just want to hear a little bit more. Like, how do you use yourself? Sure. Well, the way I use myself is um, there are some gifts that we all have, and I discovered that one of my gifts is empathy. Even if I have never experienced what you have experienced, or what a client may have experienced, right? Um, there's an emotional intelligence and an ability to empathize to say, how would I feel if I was in their predicament? So when I'm working with people, no matter how low they may feel they are, right? Uh, I remember my father. I remember people saying, we thought sleep was going to be dead. That's what they used to call him. And I remember how many times he told me that he went to jail and that, you know, just hearing it. So I empathize with people because I'm like, you know, anybody can be redeemed. You know what I'm saying? And I learned that through studying human services, through studying, you know, counseling, through studying the Bible, um, that about people being redeemed. I just I just believe that miracles do happen. And when I say miracles, I'm not talking about, about like magic. But I have seen people who were on crack, right? Who were shooting dope for years. Something happened. And these people put the bottle down, put the needle down and became counselors, soldiers for God. I seen it. Like when I tell you that, like you see something coming over me now, because I really saw it. I have really, really seen it because some of my teachers were these people. You know what I'm saying? When I used to go to that street ministry, that's why, and I'm not going to get into this because I can't handle that conversation, but I, I do not like when I see people play church. And what they do with the church and how they make a mess of it. Because where I came from, I've seen people on the brink of death. If they do one more bag of dope, if they and people go out there and pray for them and really give them that hug that we was talking about earlier that people need. And the miracle happens. They stop selling their body. They, you know what I'm saying? Like I seen one lady, this was a um a woman pastor and she was so powerful. I walked in her church. There was people in there 
that has shot up. They were some of them were still high, but they wanted God so bad they would go there high. I got high, but I'm here, Pastor. Help me. You know what I'm saying? So, um, wow, boom, yeah. When I'm helping people, I I don't care how many times they relapse. I'm looking for the miracle. If it doesn't happen when they're with me, okay. But I just believe. And you if they planted see the me, seed. Right. But if they see me as the counselor believing, then it's helpful to them. And this is what I, when I teach, because I teach case act studies too. You know what I'm saying? I teach new counselors and I teach them. I say, if you have step as a counselor, don't expect your clients to be successful with you. Because if if I'm counseling you like you ain't gonna make it, people do that. I used to work in jail when I was a counselor in jail. I used to argue with some of the clinicians, and it, it upset me to to no end because these were old black men that I should have been able to look to. But they would be say stuff like in the office, like, "Man, that nigga ain't gonna ever stop getting high." Or Rich, I don't know why you writing him a letter for court because he ain't gonna do. N-. And I'm saying, how do you know where he's gonna be tomorrow? So it's you know the faith and like, the belief. They giving up, but you're not giving up on them. Right. You wow, can't give up on people. Grace. Wow. How could you how could you be a counselor and give up on people? You know, this, <laughs> addiction is a disease, but drug use is also a symptom. That's what we have to remember. Drug use is a symptom of something else. Self-medicating. From the street pharmaceuticals, yeah. street pharmacy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to start preaching. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. That's what we do here. Word sound and power. Go on. <laughs> Boom. Rev. <laughs> yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. how do you use uh, words and energy and as we're doing hip hop? In order to um, heal, um, speak those things into existence. Speak those things that are hoped for as though they were uh, a reality. Speak them into existence. Um, because of uh, because of the abuse that I had taken. Um my music was kind of angry. It was quote unquote intellectual, but angry too. But I learned, I said, I got to stop speaking anger into the atmosphere. Let me speak something Mm -hmm. else, you know? So I used to use my energy and my skill to express my pain, to get people to understand my message. And I learned that from Martin Luther King because I read a quote from And he was saying that, I'm not quoting him verbatim correctly, but he was saying that, if anger, rage, and violence is always mixed in your message, then you'll lose the person's understanding. Your me- mm-hmm. The important thing is that your message get across. They may they may have to chew on it for a while. They may not get it right away. But if you put those other negative ingredients on it, then it kind of kills the message. You know what I'm saying? Like my tone mm-hmm. can kill my message right now. If I was saying to like we're talking about counseling people, if I was saying to y'all, yeah, I care about people, you know, my tone kind of looks like, you know what I mean? But um, I learned to 
that music is a powerful universal language. And if you mm -hmm. use if you mix the tones in the words together, mm -hmm. they awaken certain parts of the brain without the person even knowing. And I learned that by listening to a lot of music. I learned that through Mahalia Jackson's voice. Um, excuse me, Curtis Mayfield was brilliant in doing this. Mm -hmm. And then um, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a woman named Barbara Mason. Mm. You guys ever heard of Barbara Mason? Gospel mm -hmm. singer? No, she was she was an old school singer. She sang a song mm -hmm. called Oh How It Hurts. Mm -hmm. Oh how it oh how it hurts to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something. You remember that SP? Yes, I'd sing it, but um I want people <laughs> to tune in next week. <laughs> yeah, listen, I, I almost started singing it. I had to catch myself. <laughs> well, nobody would I'm gonna do them. I'm gonna do the world a favor and not make them go through that. So <laughs> SP got in her feelings. She was humming. She went, mm -hmm. yeah. But but Barbara Barbara Mason. There's two. There's two female artists that do not get their credit for how brilliant their vocals were. That's Barbara Mason mm -hmm. and um, Linda Jones. Anybody ever heard that song? Hypnotize. You got me hypnotized, Biggie, Biggie, Biggie. Can't you see? <laughs> oh, oh, this man. This. You, you know what I'm talking about? This Way before that. Uh, oh yeah, you got SP time traveling right I now. Know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you listen to my music, this, this, this my music. grandmother, my uh -huh. grandmother used to used to play that. Beat me up, Scotty. We had we had the you, you know. The big console with the record mm -hmm. play on one side and the stereo on the other side, and yeah, yeah. Uh, the TV sitting on top yeah. of it, and then on mm -hmm. top of that TV was the actual TV to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We had that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, we tried to we tried to perform a miracle and get that bottom on the world. I know that's what we did. Yeah. Oh, but she used to play those songs. Oh man, mm -hmm. she had the records. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. but she let me tell you, which you probably already yeah. know. But Linda Jones could—I don't care how tough of a man you were—her message would would melt you. And I mean, I would sit there. And listen to those songs for hours to come up with my song. Like, how could I master that form of expression? How could I master Curtis Mayfield's form of expression? You know what I'm saying? And you know, I used to sit and 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 really listen to the sounds of the '60s. That's how I'm so in tune with what they were going through and what they felt through. Them. They were masters of ceremony, moved the crowd. Yeah, no question. No question. Mm -hmm. SP, did you hear her riffs? Yes. Her voice, she, her voice was yeah. powerful. Oh, I love yes. her so much. SP said, I gotta stop this interview. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, hold break. On. <laughs> she does not, she does not get the props that she deserves because 
she laid down a foundation that a lot of other female singers and male singers follow because a lot of people couldn't riff like you know a lot no. of people couldn't riff like, like like her barbara lewis and all of them they they couldn't do it you know i, I like the singers of today but after you know i don't think they can touch those those people you know that's another i i can go on sorry that's too bad <laughs> yeah you you and me both <laughs> <laughs> you don't make me break out the dominoes. <laughs> yeah. Cards. Bring SP back in a day. Oh, Forget about man. it. Yes. That was before no. my time. That was what, like 60 something? 64, 64, 65. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I was you know born what? in 72, but my grandmother had the had the records. Yeah, had the records, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember those. Yes, um, you discovered my, them. It's like 45s. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember the 45s. I remember hearing uh, another woman who doesn't get her props, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Yeah. I love Diana, but Martha Reeves wasn't promoted the way she was. Because yeah. Yeah, that's so because Diana had the look, right? Diana had the look that could sell records, right. and she her voice was soft enough where she wasn't, um, uh, mm -hmm. where she wasn't uh, intimidating to white people, right? And Martha Reeves was powerful because that song that she yeah. had, uh, come and get these memories. Mm. Come and get these memories. Okay, you don't stop it right yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to go find a date. <laughs> I was, I was trying to get her to play it. No, I, I, let me stop. Oh shit! <laughs> when you started two hours late, now you start this. We're gonna be here another two hours. Shit. Yeah, we're gonna. So we're gonna pull, I'm, I'm gonna pull the grill out in the living room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, let's go back to to your time as an artist. Yeah. Uh, so when you decided to make music and you met up with when you decided take us through the process of when you decided to make music and how did that come together? Oh, yeah. Well, I was a little, <clears throat> let me see, I was at a place of frustration because I was with a crew called Nuff Damage, aka USS, and um, we was a crew, but all, a crew that also did music. And I was always kind of like an outcast. Like, they looked at me like, yeah, Rich hangs with us, but he's corny. You know, he wants to do this, this, and this. So I wasn't really getting, I, I, I felt the props I deserved. You know, they was doing songs without me that we were supposed to do together. And, you know, it was just like disrespect. So I parted ways. So I started working on a solo project and looking for somebody to help me with that solo project. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I ran into uh, Michael Michael Pudiz, who became Mandic Verse, right? And the way mm -hmm. we connected is strange story, but it's true. Um, uh, he was going through some emotional problems. And uh, all of our friends was like making fun of him, like, yo, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? So he's like breaking down one day. And he walks into the bathroom. Um, 
and he's like crying a little bit. So everybody's like, you know, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, get it together. So I'm I'm saying to them, let me talk to him. So everybody's like, no, I got it, I got it. Uh, tell us what's wrong. So he looks at them and says, I don't know how to tell y'all this, but he said, I feel like I don't have a soul. Everybody walked out. It was like, what? So I stayed. And I said to him, I said, you know, as crazy as this sounds, I get it. Um, they don't understand. And we connected from that time. And so he came with me to a friend's studio one day. Um, we was talking. He was asking me, he said, Rich, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to Andre's studio. There was a guy out here named Andre. And he said, well, can I come with you? I said, yeah. So I played him a sample that I was trying to get turned into an instrumental. And he said, yo, I really like this sample. So he he became, he came, he became kind of like a little brother to me. And I said, well, let me hear you rap. And he started rapping. And I heard his talent. Like, I could see, I could... I could look through the um, the rustiness or whatever you call it, or the undeveloped part, and I seen I was like, this, this guy is good. So I kind of started teaching him about all the old records that we were just talking about and sampling and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then he, I feel like I discovered him. I was the first one to really see what he was capable of, but all his talent came from him. He started to buy the beat machines. We started to put money together. Um, and then his father took the old school music education further because his father was a musician. They were like the Jacksons. Mm -hmm. all, him and his brothers could sing, play piano, whatever. And he started to actually learn how to make beats and teach himself how to make beats. So I started teaching him how, you know, to write rhymes. Next thing I know, he's making beats and writing rhymes and we're a group. And then the message that we all agreed on was that as black men, we got to be able to, to uh, embrace our emotions and not be looked at as soft or feminine or, you know what I'm saying? Because anger is an emotion. Um, mm -hmm. when, a, when a boxer gets in the ring, that's emotion. Um, when a rapper is rapping, regardless of what message he's giving you, that's emotion. He might be telling you facts, but there's emotion with those facts. So. Mm -hmm. We wanted to master that, but we also wanted to send a different message that, um, yeah, we're black men, but there's more to us than controversy, shooting, fighting, and uh, you know, sex. You know, I, I feel like we're over sexualized. Like they make black men on TV look like we're just horny twenty four seven, which is not true. You know what I'm saying? So. Mm -hmm. We kind of came together agreeing on the same message as to where the crew I was with before. I would be on some records and sound totally different from what they were talking about, which is okay. Because that happened with me and Amanda Verse too, but just not, it was more cohesiveness. So um, we started in 1996 doing group albums and, and uh, solo albums. And then my cousin was one of the original members. Um, right mm -hmm. now, Ray uh, did first show with us at, at a Black History concert in Nerusha High School. And that was a big thing because my cousin suffered from cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, could, he couldn't walk straight. And um, sometimes his confidence was impacted, you know, by that. <clears throat> but but he, he joined our group and, you know, uh, 
we became a conscious group. The only thing that really hit us is that we got into a, a, a spat at one of the shows that we were doing. And he mm -hmm. because I think he was going through my cousin Ray was going through different struggles and he started dabbing and dabbing in the street. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, we was like, yo, you're supposed to be with us. You know what I'm saying? And you know, I wasn't about that first. But we didn't we kind of didn't take into consideration what he was going through growing up in the having his father around needing money. And so, you know, we kind we got mad and he was like, Well, I'm out. So he left the group. And we was like, Ray, if you leave us at this show, you can't just come back. So a couple of years went by. We hadn't we spoke, but not the way we normally do did. And then I saw him at the park one day, the Lincoln Park, and we spoke. And I was just happy to see him, you know? And I said, yeah, I gotta make it a point to talk to him more. Um, three weeks later, he got shot, got killed. So one of the original members of ESP production uh, died um, from a gunshot wound, um, taking identity. So one gangbanger was looking for another one. And you know what I'm saying? So we suffered that loss, but we kept pushing forward. It was tough. Um, but I gotta say, me and Mandiverse at that time, we made great magic together. And, and um, we even used that tragedy to motivate us to keep on speaking to the young What was some mm -hmm. of what was what was your favorite song that you made during that time? Mm. <laughs> Wow, at one time there's a song called Tears in the Eyes of a Poet. That was on my solo album. Now I've been mm -hmm. told that, that I I've been told that, that was the best album that ESP production put forth. Which I'm honored, but I think mm -hmm. they were all good. Um, but Tears in the Eyes of a Poet, I've got so honest on that song. Um in one of the songs that I wrote, it was called Tears in the Eyes of a Poet. And I got mm -hmm. so all my emotion came out in that song because my cousin had got got killed, and then another family mm -hmm. member had got shot and died. So all of that came out in that one song, "Tears in the Eyes of a Poet." And there were so many lines that I had in there that I one time I said, "I feel the hood never taught me no lessons; it just gave me animosity and heavier weapons." Uh, my thought process is like a, lead, a lethal explosion, leading me to destruction. That's part of the plan, but I try to take a moment to reach for God's hands. Tears in the eyes of a poet. Behold, this blood covers my eyes and change the world as we know it. Um, that song was very dark and emotional, but I was just talking about what I felt like my mm -hmm. other black men that are close to me. And I'm trying mm -hmm. to follow God. Why? I was upset. I was mad. And a lot of people, mm -hmm. they're so used to seeing the smile on my face. They're so used to me going to the church. And they're so, they, don't, they didn't really know how much pain I was in. And a lot of times my pain was taken lightly because I wasn't in the street. And I wasn't robbing. Mm -hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't going to jail. But to be... Somebody who tries to hold up the community, 
it's taxing. It's taxing, mm-hmm. and that and it, it came out in that song. I said things that you know my, when my wife heard it, she was like, you know, she questioned me about it. My mother questioned me about she well, she didn't do it directly, but my mother heard one of the songs and he sent my sister to ask me he said mom said why your song so sad you know but that song tears in the eyes of a poet i say it was one of my favorites because it was like a catharsis if i'm saying that right it was just relief Mm -hmm. sometimes i got tired of having to be rich be the good boy don't Mm -hmm. yell don't you know, hold your shoulders back, and and that time in the studio, it just it came out on paper first, mm-hmm. and then it just came out. You know, and I I was like, um, my only one of the lines I said in there is, if I ever get that song, SB, I'm gonna send it to you. But it's, I said, my only reason for life is to conquer this world. I can't define my manhood through sleeping with girls. I know in my heart, God sees what I do. So when I see death, it's like I already knew. So I ask to be forgiven for a lot of my ways. Pray that God is beyond the mistakes I made. I was hurt and at times couldn't control my actions. Rap music wasn't the reason why I was packing. This world is cruel and will test your manhood. And that's why sometimes I find myself with the no good. That's what I was saying because I was struggling with inner conflicts. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a heavy weight that you carry. Some other hobbies, pursuits, or careers you would like to follow if you had it to do again or in your spare time, you know, like self care stuff or Richard time. Well, um, I still do some acting here and there. I have a a role coming up in a series um, with, with I can't really tell what the series is yet, but I have um, a role coming up um, and I aspire to be a social worker. I want to take it a step above or a step further than just human services and drug counseling and be a social worker because I <clears throat> I want to help people from a broader perspective. Sometimes in some of the programs, it's about numbers and not really about people. And I struggle with that. It's about making the numbers. And sometimes I struggle with making numbers while people still go to their grave or back to jail. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to make people, and I str- I've always struggled with that. You know what I mean? You mean so like filling quotas and um, budgets and stuff like that for the year? Yeah, like I know that that's part of business. I'm not against business, but when people are dying and money's still being made, it does just doesn't sit well with me. I know that ultimately the people have to make the choice, you know, about wanting to do better. But if 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 the focus is more on paper than the human, and the human is the reason why we're getting a check. You understand what I'm saying? Um, that's just so. I think that what would remedy that issue is if if I 
increase my education so I could do more. So, um, right, culture versus corporate. I, I, uh, I think that that is something, another career I would like to pursue. I've done other careers, you know, music, done a little bit of acting, boxing, you know. Um, the boxing, you know, I'm too old for that now. It's behind me. So, but uh, social work, yeah, something. I've studied it in college anyway, because the first two levels of human services, you learn a lot of social work. So I want to continue that. The name of the show is Powerful Impact. Mm -hmm. um, who are three people who had a powerful impact in your life, either personally or professionally? Hmm. Three people that had a powerful impact on me. Um, well, definitely my mother and father, because um, I watched them turn things around in their life especially my father, as far as turning things around. Um, my sisters, right? I got three beautiful sisters. And um, hmm. Martin Luther King, I would say. That's, you know, if I could only name three people. Um, Martin, Martin Luther King. <laughs> yeah. Um. And um, what do you want your legacy to be? My legacy, I want my legacy to be, um, there was a man that fulfilled his purpose, a man that did good. Um, that, a man who was an effective messenger you know, I look at myself as a messenger. Even with wellness, you know, I only have the message. I'm just trying to spark the mind, you know, um, or spark the person's um, drive. But I guess my legacy to be human service, you know, to service people. And the reason why I say that is because it's easy to complain. It's easy to say what needs to be done, but it's something different to do your part. Like Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see. I believe that was Gandhi, you know, um, that said that. So there's a lot of changes I want to see. Um, and I just want my legacy to be that I wasn't afraid to pursue um, the journey in order to make those changes. You know, um, people told me I was crazy for the line of work that I chose, but they don't understand it was a calling. Like, Everybody said, human services, you ain't going to make no money. You know, everybody was telling me that. Um, but, you know, um, I want to I serve people and, and do good because my pain has helped me to, to understand other people's pain. I not, like now, now I know why I had to suffer. I didn't understand it then, and I and not in a disrespectful way, but I did question God sometimes, like why. You know what I'm saying? Like, what have I? I'm not saying I'm an angel. I've done plenty of bad things, but I was saying to God, like, why is is my suffering this intense? You, I've never shot nobody. Why are people shooting my family? I've never stuck nobody up. Why are people hurting me? Like, 
Why am I getting hit by teachers? Why is my pain not being recognized? I feel alone. I'm, you know, I'm like, how can I take? But feeling like that allows me, like when I see my other clients, like, you know, they're crying, stay rich, I smoke crack again. I'm about to lose my kids again, they're crying, right? <clears throat> but then I'm able to say, I can empathize with their pain. Let's work on a plan to get past this. You know what I mean? But I had to go through pain in order to understand uh, the pain of, of other people. And, it, you know, it just was a rough journey because a lot of people didn't know the pain I was holding in. But my legacy, I would like for it to be that, you know, I serviced people. Where do you see yourself in five years? Hmm. Probably a little more gray. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in five years, five years, I hope to complete my education as a social worker, you know, and um, writing some books. Um, I still like to write, you know, I haven't done you know, music in a while, but I still write poetry. And I and um, I have a couple of books that I've actually started already. So I aspire to become an author and just, uh, you know, always looking for ways to be a better husband, better father, you know. Uh, you know, um, that's really it. That's really all I could, you know, one of my goals is to complete, you know, um, education as a social worker. And write some books. Last words of advice um, that you'd like to give people who are looking to pursue what you're doing uh, in your life, either personally or professionally? Yeah, um, if you're gonna do this type of work, um, whether, um, whether it be ministry, whether it be human services, drug counseling, um, this is something that you have to put both feet in and um, sacrifice is a big part of it. When it comes to servicing people, it's not about me. You know, it's about the needs of the people. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Um, my last words would be uh, about that. Uh, put both feet in. You got to go in with both feet. There are certain things in life where you get involved with it. You got to put both feet in. It's not like, you know, playing video games or you know, throwing a, 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 a football or something for recreation. Like, whatever you're going to pursue seriously, you got to put both feet in. Is there in, any shout-outs or anything you'd like to promote? Yes. Yeah, first let me say shout-out to Amir. I saw Amir on the show, too. I forgot to mention yeah. that. I've known Amir for years. Um mm -hmm. I've known Amir. As, as a matter of fact, the last time I saw Amir, it was at Stud Doogie's funeral. Um, Cause mm. Stud, Doogie, Stud Doogie is my niece's father. Mm -hmm. um, but Amir was always talented, always ahead of his time. My goodness, mm -hmm. that's another, that's another guy who like, you know, we couldn't touch. That dude was just something else. But I would like to give a shout out to my wife, Keyshawn Adamson, my children. Um, 
you know, shout out to Mandiverse, Roberto and his family. Um, thank you for all the great music that we did together for years and the legacy that we laid down. Um, my sister, Christine Peters, my sister, Sonia, Kim and Nicole. Um, yeah, that's all I could think. Oh, Kat Spina. Kat Spina, God bless you. That's a, um, a pop artist who I wrote songs for. Uh, in the past. Um, she's very talented. I'd like to give her a shout out. Um, yeah, God bless everybody. I hope I didn't leave anybody out. And I want to thank USP and Nev and the whole Powerful Impact crew. I know Tiptoe's not here today, but I, her and the other ones, I remember. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been our opening. Um, I hope you'll come on and do a For My People episode on the prison industrial complex because we didn't get a chance to really dig deep into that tonight. But mm -hmm. if you'll come on to a For My People, we can make that a topic and you can dive as deep as you want to into those waters because I think it's something that needs to be addressed. Oh, yeah. Listen, you just tell me the time and the place. And, you know, I make sure I comb my hair and I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but definitely, yeah, because there's a lot I could tell you about that. Cool. Sure. As I want to thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to thank everybody for tuning in. Um, subscribe to the channel. Uh, check us out. We We... I try my best to do what we can to build up the community. And I hope you take the time to make a powerful impact wherever you are. Now. Please follow, like, and subscribe to the YouTube channel and all other social media platforms. By the time you hear this, we're going to be on audio on all streaming platforms. Boom! Shout out to <laughs> <laughs> All and right, new, we new, out. New Rochelle. Peace. Yes, New Rochelle 914 Nauru. Bring back the black history in New Rochelle, please. Bumpy Johnson's daughter used to work at the New York pool room on Lincoln Avenue in New Rochelle. Yeah. Rita Johnson. All right, then. Yeah. Powerful impact out. All my people, OG.